Welcome to the Land Jam Podcast, a semi-friendly discussion between two blokes on watches, cars, and everything in between. Now, here are your hosts, Tommy and Sanjeev. Welcome to the Land Jam Podcast, Episode 9, Basil Chicken. This is Sanj and... Uh, Tommy. Hey, we welcome talk about uh, Basel World today, right, Sanj? Yeah, Basel World, uh, an event that happened months ago. Yeah, actually, uh, end of March. So uh, you know, keeping with us, right on schedule. Yep. Right up at things. A lot has happened since our last episode, but uh, we'll yeah. skip all of that. Yeah, yeah, we're back in action, folks. We're not done yet. So, yeah. Uh, hello, everyone. Fun. Welcome back, and. Yeah, let's talk about Basel World. And actually, although this thing happened way back in March, it's become topical. But uh, once again, and we'll reveal why in a bit. But uh, I thought we will kick things off and uh, talk about Basel World. So, for the non-hopeless watch nerds out there, what is Basel World, Sanch? Basel World is basically the world's largest uh, watch or horology fair um, held in Switzerland, Basel, Switzerland. Um, it, it's uh, actually put on by the MCH Group. With, which uh, also puts on the Art Basel show every year. Uh, it's a big art thing. They have a big event in Miami as well. Really the well-heeled go to purchase rare art. So who knew? I didn't know they were actually connected. I had no idea either. Uh, but basically the whole point of this fair is, I guess the brands put out their new models for the year. They get some buzz around the brands. They launch new things. So, I mean, it used to be the thing where if you wanted to see what was going on in the watch world, you would have to attend and kind of see what's on offer. But... Something big happened just recently, right, Sanj? Yes, yes, yes. Something massive happened. So, as you know, in the watch world, it's basically um, most of the watch brands are filled under conglomerates, and Swatch Group is the largest conglomerate. And they announced just recently, a couple of weeks ago, really, or a few weeks ago, that they're leaving Baselore for next year, which is massive. It's huge. I, I... You know, because you had Richemont that already left, I think, in the 90s, right? Or early 2000s. Yeah. And now Swatch is gone. Um, I I mean, Rolex and Tudor are there, I guess. Uh, but, I mean, that's huge. That's, that's no Omega. I Omega mean... Omega at Baselworld, which is shocking. Yeah, I mean, you literally have 18 big brands. I mean, Omega is such a huge presence. Long and, yeah. Yeah, I mean, everything. They're, they're just uh, gone. I mean... Yeah. You still have the other big boys like Rolex, Patek Philippe, Tudor, the LVMH group, uh, which consists of Hublot, Tag Heuer, and Zenith. Um, right, right. But, I mean, it's like, for example, at the Detroit Auto, show, Detroit Auto Show, General Motors pulling out, you know? It's insane. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, what do you think is the reason why? I've read a couple um, sort of explanations or opinion pieces on it. I don't know. What do you think? So I've read through and I just kind of picked up bits and pieces, but um, basically these watchmakers are funding uh, Baselworld, at least the new building that was they were hosting it. Um, it Baselworld is a huge chunk of the MCH group, but apparently one of Omega's complaints is, hey, we're funding this building and we're not really getting much, uh, much out of it, really. I mean, Right. Well, yeah, I, I also think that the game's kind of changed, right? Like, back back in the day, you know, you watch for the year, you would launch with World and then kind of ride that buzz all the way through. But, you know, you have basically every brand bringing their new watches and releases at the same time, so you're kind of cannibalizing people's attention between the releases. So if you're working for years to release something, and then, yeah, you release something, you get a little bit of buzz on one day, and the next day something else eclipses it, you know, it kind of leaves a bad taste in the mouth, and that's it for the year, right, as far as publicity. So I can kind of see why it makes sense not to do that. Maybe it does make more sense to just, like, get out of Basel World and release watches regularly throughout the year and just hog, the, not hog the attention, but, like, sort of hold on to the attention for longer than what it is now. And I think a lot of people, you know, kind of get exposed to watches and brands through the Internet and Instagram and what have you. So do do they really need to spend all that money and cram everything in, in a couple of days in Basel? I'm not sure. Right. I mean, what's one interesting stat about Basel World 2018 is that 650 exhibitors were present. Yeah. And that's actually a 50% decrease from the year before. Yeah. And yeah. it was 2,087 exhibitors a decade ago. Mind you, a lot of them were small, independent, or very small companies. 
I mean, but and, yeah, and uh, the ironic thing was actually a lot more independent names were making their way into Basel World uh, this year. Uh, there's an American company. What's the name of them? It'll come to me. But like, th- this is their first trip to Basel World. It was supposed to be this year, and uh, it's it's kind of it's kind of a strange and ironic twist that these guys have kind of came into play because of the internet are now coming into Basel World, and the guys that were always part of the traditional establishment are now out of Basel World. But right. I mean, one of the other things is I think uh, Omega, or uh, sorry, not Omega, the Swatch group is not happy about with the MCH group is how they handle Baselworld is when you look at, say, the other big um, watch expo, say, the SIHH, um, it's, SIHH is, you know, has a lot more facilities available to these watchmakers, such as a dedicated media section, um, presentation schedules, complimentary meals, shuttle services, postal packages and all that fun stuff. Yeah. Um, apparently, I guess Basel World does not have that. I, I don't know. I w- I've never been to Basel World. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, if there's no Omega, I'm a, I feel a little less compelled to go because I'm kind of an Omega fanboy. So. Oh, me too. But, I mean, it's 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 really unfortunate. Um, I mean, the Swatch Group probably has their reasons. It's probably also even a cost associated with it too. I mean, you're talking about 18 brands with... You know. Yeah, you know what? But I don't think it's the end of the world. I mean, they're still going to be releasing plenty of stuff. It's just going to be throughout the year, so yeah. whatever. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not too upset. <laughs> I never attended, so you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we only use social media as a way to or websites, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, Basel World became topical, and hence yeah. we're talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, Sanch, uh, I guess there's one big headline from Basel World this year, so we should just get the the elephant or the Rolex in the room out of the way. <laughs> yeah, so I know Rolex is your favorite brand, Tommy. Um, I don't hate Rolex. You know, it, I, I, I can't say enough about it. I don't have that much experience with it. I don't hate Rolex. It's I have mixed feelings. Yeah, I mean, you call it the dentist choice of... <laughs> watch <laughs> yeah i mean it's gone from being worn on explorers to you know your local retired dentist or accountant so it's it's not playing really... golf in florida yes yeah, it's not, it, it doesn't have the same cachet but tell me so tell i guess me. the big one was um to me more tutor than rolex uh, is the the new gmts that came out um so rolex and throughout since for the longest time had a gmt called the gmt master which then became the gmt master too Right. Um, they actually updated the watch and added a few more features, and you know it's a this year because I guess what what was lacking before that this one was the big. Well, the big one was the to me the um, the update in the movement. Um, yeah. The caliber three two eight five now. Um, it's now has a power reserve of seventy hours. I can't remember off the top of my head what it was before, but I think it was in the forties to fifties. Um, yeah. But they basically updated it with the same. I mean, well, I won't say it's the same, but same some of the features that are being available in the other lines, you know, such as there's Paraflex hairspring, which is this alloy filled with no. I don't even know how to pronounce it, so correct me if I'm wrong. Neobium, zirconium, and oxygen yeah. alloy. But yeah. you know, um, they basically updated the movement. They added a new Jubilee bracelet. Um, yeah. Well, I mean. I think the the case being in steel is the big deal, right? Yes, that is actually yes. Thanks for uh, letting uh, informing me about that. Yeah, so they basically updated to a stainless steel case, which they now call which they now call oyster steel, which is wow. Yeah, I mean Rolex has to kind of trademark everything. You know, another annoying thing, but you know it is it is a different alloy of steel. It is a different hardness. So mm-hmm. I guess. It's fair. I mean, to be fair, Rolex does innovate in the materials department. They yeah. they come about. I mean, it, they do take their time doing so, but I guess they just want to perfect it and keep moving forward. But Rolex is also the master of uh, marketing. I mean, Rolex is not even that old of a watch company, and now like the they're the biggest luxury watch brand, basically. But I mean, I mean the. The big deal about this is that it's in steel, right? Before it was only on white gold and was twenty or twenty-five thousand dollars or whatever it was, and now it's on steel and what is it around ten grand? So yeah, it's ten, twelve grand. Um, 
program. Yeah, so it's like, okay, it's great, but you know, they, they probably should have released the steel by now anyway. They should have done it way, way, way well, long, I mean, long time ago. Yeah, it's a tool watch. It should be in steel. Yeah, I mean, these things were used by Pan Am pilots back in the day, you know? So putting it in white gold and making that the standard for a couple of years, it doesn't make any sense to me. No, not at all. But aesthetically, what do you, what do you think? Do you, do you like the way it looks? Or what? So the one thing I was never a fan of is the the bezel, the the, the font of the, the numerals on the bezel to indicate the different hours time zone. Okay. It looked way too. It looks way too digital. I prefer the one that was on the earlier, like the GMT Master One, um, a bit more, I guess, less digital in look. I, I I don't know how to put it, but it's a bit more natural in look. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, the ceramic bezel is kind of like it's not really a true red or a true blue because I don't know if you know the story, but like the ceramic bezel, they they kind of mixed. A color, or they—it was all red, and they mixed in purple to make the blue and the shade of red, or something yep. like that. So, it's not a really a, a poppy red blue that you expect when it was back in the day when the Pan Am pilots wore it. It was an aluminum bezel, so it was like it, it popped, you know. And like this one seems a little dull to me. I don't know. What do you think about that? I actually, so if I had the money to buy one, let's just say, put it that way, I think it looks good. I think it looks. It looks has that. You like it, huh? I actually do like it. I'm not a fan of the bezel, the the numbers on the bezel, but I think it has that that um, that luxury look. You know, like it's got some bling added to it. But yeah, I mean, when you compare, when you think of it as a tool watch, it's way beyond from a price point of view what it should be. I mean, it doesn't have to have white gold uh, markings and the uh, dial and all that stuff. It's unnecessary. But it's, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, but. But you know, having said that, having said that, it is it, it looks it looks okay. It looks good. I mean, I, I won't I won't turn it down. Yeah, I mean, if I were to give you a Rolex GMT Master Two right now, I would, I would happily take it off your hands. Yeah, and you would wear it and not. I, it. I, I keep my mouth shut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the other one, which was I guess the one of these real stars of the show, was the Tudor GMT Master. Tudor GMT, and I wow, yeah, tell me. Yeah, so that one, I actually had the opportunity to wear it for a total of 10 to 15 minutes. Wow, okay. And it harks back to the way the Rolex GMT Master used to be. A bit of vintage feel um, with the with the bezel and everything. And uh, it's got a little, Tudor's got their little flair with the snowflake hands, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, the one the cool thing with the Tudor is... It is a proper GMT Master. It's still using their own movement. So that was one of the cool things about it. They did not use like some bought-off movement from somewhere. Um, yeah. It's a Caliber MT6552. Um, it's got a... It's COSC certified. It's got a silicon balance spring. And it's 70 hours power reserve. Uh, That's pretty impressive on its own right. And I got to tell you, the way it looks as far as the case design looks harkens back to the original Rolex GMT. Exactly. Or than the GMT-2 does. Yes, exactly. It's got that vintage feel to it, which I really like. Yeah. And what I like about Tudor is you don't you have the option to get the straps or the bracelet, whether it's the uh, the metal bracelet or the uh, leather strap or the, the NATO, um, which is kind of cool. Um, it gives yep. you that little bit of choice. Yep, yep. And the price is significantly cheaper than the GMT Master Two. How much does it go for? It's around thirty-eight hundred bucks or thirty-eight hundred euro. Well, that's not bad. I mean, I mean, it's a lot, but it's still you know more affordable than the Rolex. Yeah. So that's one Which of the things. To be, I guess. So I managed to wear this in real life. Um, surprisingly light and very comfortable. Mind you, my. I do wear my Fortis Cosmonaut often, and that thing weighs the same weight as a single brick. It's a hubcap. Yeah, literally. <laughs> so anything else that I wear is significantly lighter on my wrist. So, But I felt it was really comfortable. I mean, it's a beautiful watch. Uh, I cannot deny that fact. But and, You know, I, and my complaint about the bezel, it doesn't hold true for the Tudor, because the Tudor is an aluminum bezel. 
and the blue and the red to me look more true to life, true to color than the Rolex does. Exactly. No, I agree. I think the Rolex the, looks like shades of purple. Well, me. I mean, the blue that's on the Tudor is a very dark blue. I mean, the original GMT Masters had a very light, I wouldn't say light blue, but a more pronounced blue. They had a pop, yeah. 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 Um, but the finishing is still phenomenal. I would expect the Rolex GMT Master 2 to even have more precision finishing. Um, the, I mean, it's it's a wonderful watch to wear and wonderful watch to look at. Um, if I go afford it, definitely I'll take that. But the one thing I like about the Tudor is it's got its own character. Like, I will buy the Tudor not because it's a cheaper Rolex. I'll buy the Tudor because it's a Tudor and I like the look of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, a Tudor is... I have to say, between the two brands, probably innovating more than Rolex is. Like, they take chances, and they have their own look. Exactly. They, and they, they know what they're hearkening back to, and it's not like they're making it up. Like, Tudor does have a long history. So, you know, I to be honest, even if I had the money for both, I probably would still pick the Tudor. I like the Tudor. It looks vintage You know, it's got a certain uh, je ne sais quoi to it. Exactly. I, I 100% agree with you on that. And the only thing is... Me personally is that right now, I mean, I would not spend $3,800 on a watch um, only because I, my wife would kill me and sure. I could also contribute that to a mortgage payment or a few mortgage payments. Uh, but yeah. if I could, I would for sure. And that was the thing, like $3,800 on a GMT watch. Is that really necessary? But um, it's not, yeah, but you know, to be honest, it's not that bad in, in the scheme of you know, watches of that level. It's I agree. Bad. Yes, when I when I look at it from the world of luxuries, luxury Swiss watches, it's actually a really good deal. It's a great deal. Yeah, yeah. it's great. I mean, it's the ticket price is less than a Speedmaster. Yeah. No, I mean it's and it's a new watch. I, I guess these things are sold out already. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I would be surprised. Um, it was really quite a blockbuster when it came out, so I'm not surprised at least, but. But yeah, an excellent watch that I, I, I enjoyed for 10-15 minutes. It was tough for me to give away. I, I wanted to yeah. run away from... It was actually a co-worker of mine who... Um, he did oh, some... Someone got a promotion, huh? <laughs> uh, he, no. He basically had a Planet Ocean and he sold it and used the funds to buy a Tudor. Nice. I got to get in the habit of selling watches and buying like different ones. I, I've never sold a watch. I feel like... Uh, but, you know... The same know. way how we talk about our stocks. Uh, we never sell our stocks. And we, we, immediately, sell. <laughs> we immediately regret when it goes down. Yeah, we never sell. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's definitely the release of the year, in oh, my opinion. Yeah, and I can genuinely say that it's it's a wonderful watch to look at. Um, okay, so, so I'm, so I'm going to move on to Omega, which who knew this would be Omega's last Basel Worlds, but it is. And... Um, Omega had some releases that are a little controversial. I don't know. I'm going to... I have mixed feelings, as you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, another year, another Apollo release, obviously. That's what Omega does. I mean, you got to think about it. Starting to just cut you in there, Tommy. I mean, when it comes to Omega, they're also the masters of marketing. I mean, the Speedmaster, yes, they made it to the moon and everything, but... They're just finding every opportunity to release a limited edition referencing yeah. the Apollo mission. It's kind of aggravating because yeah. I believe there's already a limited edition Apollo 8 Speedmaster out there because they already did all the Apollo missions already. So now they have another Apollo 8 re-release, which it just, it's like, you know, beating a dead horse. I don't know. But they have this new uh, Apollo 8 limited edition Speedmaster um, it's not a professional. It's a dark side of the moon. So it's got the uh, dual register, not the, the tri-register. Um, but um, this is not like the other dark side of the moons that are dual register because this is actually a tri-register, which should re- be reminiscent of Speedy Pro. Um, it's a manual wind-up movement. It's an 1869, uh, which is the decorative version of the professional movement, but it's got a exhibition case bag on one side. Uh, so you can see the movement from the back, which is definitely not professional. Uh, and the dial is actually skeletonized. Uh, the surface is the surface of the dial is punctured, and it's supposed to remind you of the moon. And you can see through it into the movement. 
which uh, it's pretty it's pretty cool. It's pretty shocking for uh, someone who's like familiar with the Speedmaster to see a skeletonized Speedmaster. You know, it's it's different. And um, really, the weird thing is there's these yellow accents on the watch and yellow accents on the band, um, which to me seems confusing because that reminds me of the Speedy racing watches that have touches of color, like the red and the yellow or the blue. And it, it's sort of like a part racing watch, part moon watch, part, you know, it's half man, half beast. Uh, I don't know what to make of this thing. So, you know, I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Sanch? What, is, what was your first impression? My first impression is if you, if, it sounds like Omega went to Hublot and asked them to make a watch. Cause yeah, it, it, it just doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah, there's so much going on. Okay, so my my personal thoughts on the yellow, I actually don't mind that bit. Um, it it has a lot of a bit of a pop um, against the black, but why did they make another dark side of the moon? I mean, are they that desperate to just make more speedy watches and sell it? I mean, they sell, so I, I guess I guess it makes sense. I, I don't know. It, it's just like it's a dark side of the moon body with a speedy pro movement in it basically right? with the and, markers of from like the the racing dial like from like the mark ii you know the, yeah. yeah yeah except it's not orange it's yellow yeah yeah it's it's kind of all, all over the place and the band with the punctured holes on the rub, uh, the uh, leather band with the yellow stitching it's you know i don't know that's a bit much it's a bit much because i mean is it supposed to be a space watch? Is it supposed to be a racing watch? Well, I mean... You can do one or the other. You can do both. Well, let's... I guess they're trying to do both because in the sense the Speedmaster was originally a racing watch. I I, I hear you, but like... Why? It, it was it was a professional black and white watch. This is like... You know, it's skeletonized. It's it's too much. I, I can't. I'm, I'm not that adventurous. I think the reason why they may do this is like so you know how you have these new Tag Heuer career watches that are skeletonized. Yes. Yeah, maybe it's to capture that market or the Hublot market. Um, not necessarily our favorites. We are. I have my own reservations about that. Um, yeah. There are people who love this. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure there's there's a market for that. But, there's a, there's a market for everything. There's yeah. there's a market for you know. Fiat 500s, but we don't we don't entertain those people. Right? No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on to the other Speedmaster release, which of course Omega had to do. Omega uh, released the Speedmaster CK2998 Limited Edition. Uh, the CK2998, just to remind you, is the original Speedy in Space. It's the version of the watch that was uh, worn by Wally Shearer in 1962 and the Mercury Atlas flight. Um, it was there for nine hours in space. It was the longest American orbit. That's why it's kind of famous. Um, this watch was already reissued, reissued by Omega, by the way, in 2012 as the first Omega in space. Um, but this this is basically a first Omega in space, which is every Speedy fan's like greatest hits, right? So you've got uh, the first Omega in space. You've got the the the, the arrow hands, uh, but now it's it's a panda dial. It's got a red chrono hand. And then the strange thing, which I, I still don't understand why they did this, is they took out the tachometer scale and they put in a pulsation scale. Yeah. Medicine. And it's a strange choice. And I, I know collectors look for the pulsation scale and they look for the panda dial speedies and they look for those ones with the funky hands. So basically what they did was they, they thought of the quirkiest speedmaster they could think of and they put all the stuff in one. Um I don't know. Who is this for, Sanch? To be honest, I don't mind the panda look and everything. Um, I don't mind the panda. That's the least offensive thing. It's just... It just seems so confused. I don't know. I think it's more to cater to the hardcore Speedmaster collectors, you know. Something different with the pulsation scale. Um, yeah, I mean... I mean, that's not an original idea. So what I'm saying is, like, there are Speedmasters with pulsation scales already. They're basically just putting all the quirkiest ideas in one. Yeah. To me, it just seems like, I don't know, weird overkill. I, I don't know. I, I guess. And it's got the racing strap, I guess. I mean, how much does this go for? Like, uh, Oh. The sticker price. 
Well, they're only making 2,998 pieces. And sticker price is 5,850, which, it's not terrible. It's, I mean, it's, not, a, it's not terrible. I mean, I would take this over the Dark Side of the Moon release, uh, that they re, the re-release that they did, the Apollo 8 that we just yeah. talked about. I would, I agree. But to be honest, the Dark Side of the Moon is a, is a very good-looking watch. Just the original the Dark Side, yeah, not the Apollo yeah. 8. Yeah, I like the original. It's That actually looks pretty killer. But yeah. yeah, so, you know, Speedmaster releases this year pretty controversial. Uh, not really my cup of tea. But you know what? I mean, from a marketing point of view, you got to, you know, test the waters and see what, what's good, what's bad, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, they're taking risks, so good for them. It just I just feel like they've they've sort of milked it quite a bit, and it wouldn't, wouldn't kill them to, I don't know do something different i'm not sure i don't know or they can just yeah, stick with the original professional and just sell a lot more of those i don't know yeah yeah I, I don't know where i want them to take it from here i just i just know that i don't want them to do what they're doing <laughs> yeah i wouldn't mind like the mark two the mark three mark four re-releases or something different with those cases yeah those are awesome and yeah even making Mark IIs that are just regular Mark IIs, do they do that anymore? Or is it only Mark Mark II racings? I think they still do Mark II racings. I'm not too sure on the other ones. Like, do they do a Mark II professional? I guess that's my question. I have no clue. That's something... I don't think they do. So, like, that'd be a great watch for them to re-release. I, I don't know. I gotta double-check, but I'm fairly sure they don't. Or, like, a Speedmaster in a bullhead case. Like, a Speedmaster bullhead. That'd be cool. They, they had those already. Oh. They had, they had an Olympic Speedmaster. It's from... I don't know the 2012 Olympics or something. They they had a they bullet, did bullet. they did, but like I'm talking about with like the you know with the tachymetric scale and all that cool stuff, like just something different. Something different, exactly. I, I just feel like they're flogging this Apollo thing a little too much. Yeah, I mean, there's only 17 Apollo missions, and yeah. you got to subtract Apollo one. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's not a laughing matter. It isn't, but I mean, yeah. That's a little gallows humor there. Yeah. Um, I guess the other watch that Omega released that I wanted to mention was the Seamaster 1948. So the Seamaster line actually just celebrated its 70th anniversary, which I had no idea it went that far back. Neither did I. I thought it was basically from like the 50s when, it, you know, when diving watches became a craze. Right, so the original Seamaster was not really a dive watch. Like it was, I guess, semi water resistant, but not really. You know, you really couldn't jump in the sea with this thing. So it was Seamaster in name only. And then when they, when dive watches started to, you know, take off in the mid fifties, Omega repurposed that line, obviously because of the name, into uh, the Seamaster that we know, you know, from the fifties and sixties and seventies on. You know, the, the big triangle, the famous, you know, Royal Navy dive watches and stuff. Uh, but basically, this re-release is the original Seamaster dress watch. Um, but it's it's cool, right? So it's they they're using a coaxial master chronometer movement, and they have exhibition case backs on these watches. And they have two types. There's one that which is central seconds hand, and they have a, a sub dial seconds hands as well. And I gotta tell you, you know, I'm not a fan of dress watches. I would never spend any money on getting a dress watch, but they look, they look pretty nice. They look pretty clean. I actually have to agree with you on this one too. Um, they look. This might be Omega's best release in Basel, well, in my opinion. Very this year, yeah, I, I think so too. One thing I liked about them is, you know, this was harking back to the 1948, um, but the case was is a 38 millimeter, um, which is a little upsized from the original, but it's a little bit. Smaller for today's taste, which is perfect. I think that's a great set. Yeah, it's a fantastic-looking dress watch, actually. Um, can... Which one do you like? Do you like the central seconds hands or the subdial? I actually like the subdial. I prefer the subdial. Something different. Me too. And the, and the and the hour and minutes hands are actually thinner in, in that version. Yes. I actually do dig this watch quite a bit. Um, something different from Omega, which I appreciate. Like, Omega needs to do something like this with the Speedmaster. Try something. Yeah, I, I think so too. I mean, I mean, I would argue they tried too much, but like, yeah, I, I, I like this. I, I'm a fan. I good, good, good on Omega for doing this. Yeah. And I, I should also mention now that we're talking speed uh, Seamasters, they actually re-released uh, the the Pierce Brosnan blue Seamaster that every you know 
second year investment banker wears. Uh, it's back with like a wave design. Yeah, so like the one that's similar to the one I have. The um, but this one's more it's pronounced. Black, right? Yes, mine's black. Barazinance was blue. Blue, yeah. And so they they released that one because that was such a huge hit of a watch, and. I can't believe it's been, what, 20 years or more since that watch came out. Yeah. That's insane. So, anyway, that came out this year as well. Um, that, that was a big deal. I'm sure a lot of people have the old version of that watch. I think that one may may be the big big Omega release, um, the, the Seamaster. Maybe. I, I don't know why we didn't focus that much on it, but, I mean... We like the watches. We talk about the watches we really wanted to talk about, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean... Look, I it they they change the innards. I think it's a master chronometer and stuff. Like, but to me, it's just basically the same watch from twenty years ago. So I, I didn't really want to focus that much on it. I guess I don't know. That's fine. I mean, we like to talk about watches, and there's we so like much to cover. Like. There's only so much we can cover. All right, right, right. All right, Zen. So, uh, what came out from Seiko this year? So the big one is well, as you. You listeners will know by now that we are fans of Omega, and we are also fans of Seiko. And Seiko released a diver's watch. Basically, it's a legendary Seiko diver's watch called the SLA-025, the high beat diver. Um, It's a recreation of the... Recreation, not recreation, sorry. Recreation of the original reference 6159-7001. Um, which was released, I believe, in 1968. Uh, so they stayed true to the case diameter, which is 44.8 and 15.7 millimeters in height. And the rubber strap and everything is still true to the original. I think the only really difference from the original is the the little bit of writing on the, the dial itself saying that it's a high beat movement. Um, one of the cool things about it is that the movement, which is the caliber 8L55, which is a gr- derivative of the Grand Seiko caliber 9S. Oh, it, wow. Okay. It has got a movement of 5 hertz. I had no idea. Wow. So, so a movement with that, that high frequency is more accurate? Yes. And, and when you look at the watch, so typically an automatic watch will move at 3 or 4 hertz. 5 yep. hertz is, you know... Very, very smooth, I guess. Uh, yeah. So it's a very limited edition release. I'm trying to remember what the... Um, I think it's 1,500 pieces, and they priced it at 5,500 euros. Exactly. And that's what gets me. You know what? It, that's well learned. I, I think, you know, this is a technologically advanced watch. It's a tool watch. Um, they're only making a limited run, and I bet you it sold out in no time. Yeah, and, uh, it, it's beautiful and look good on Seiko because, like you know, I think last year they did the sixty-two MAS, which was their first dive watch. They released re-released that last year, and then this year they released something else that was legendary. You know, that yeah, was I mean, their uh, their high beat diver from nineteen sixty-eight. So it, it, I think it's awesome. The thing is, though, like, is it? I guess it's from a collectability. I think it's for again the hardcore. Uh, Seiko fan, similar to the Apollo 8 watch, which was meant catered to the, or the CK2998, which is catered to the Omega super fan. Um, it is a well, bit much. It is a bit expensive. Well, I mean, the, 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 the wrinkle in that is that this is actually a reissue of Vintage Diver, right? Yeah. Like, neither of those watches, they're just iterations of an existing watch. Like, this is Seiko recreating piece for piece, dimension for dimension, a kind of legendary watch from 1968. So, you know, that's the cachet there. I, I think that's... that's that's. I agree. I mean, if it was, say, the same price as the Tudor GMT, I'm like, okay, this is far more um, appealing. But 5,500 euros, I don't know. It, it's a bit pricey. It, it, you know, look, it's 1,500 pieces. They're not mass producing this. I agree. That's where I think the they justify the value. And yeah. if you were to compare this watch to the Rolex Sub, it's like three grand cheaper. Yeah, and you know, you're gonna make fun of me and people. I don't care. You know, I would, I would take this watch. I think this watch looks awesome. I, I really dig it. I mean, you are a Seiko 
I would I'm say Seiko, I'm, I'm wearing a Seiko turtle right now. I'm actually wearing the gold and black uh, turtle right now, which is basically the same color scheme as this. Yeah, I mean, I consider you as a Seiko super fan, not as uh, an insult or to poke fun at you. No, I, I love Seiko. I'm not gonna lie. You actually introduced me to Seiko. I mean, the the true Seiko brand. Um, yeah. I like how they still kept the crown at the four o'clock position. Classic Seiko. Love it. Yeah, that is you know that's what they're known for. Yeah, so, I mean, good on them for Seiko. It's just that uh, for the limited edition for 5,500, mm, uh, my, my, my thoughts, uh, a bit too much. I mean, look, they're all a bit too much. So, I think, let's take the money out of it. If the money wasn't a factor, would you get one? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Immediate response. But if you were to put the money into it, I think you're going to talk about a watch that is actually quite affordable. Yeah, so this is going to be a bit of curveball for people because I'm not even sure a lot of people even know this brand anymore, but it's Certina. Uh, Certina was a Swatch brand. Uh, it was actually a Swatch brand now, but it went under the Quartz Crisis and has been resurrected. Um, and they brought back a classic diver from 1967, this dive watch that was used in C-Lab. Um, and this recreation really captures that look of the 60s and 70s and, you know, the thin skin divers. And um, it's a beautiful watch. It's called the, the DS, Certina DS, uh, DS uh, meaning double security, which is, uh, you know, an old school way of keeping the watch water resistant. Uh, they used a threaded ring and, and gaskets, and they kept the, to keep the crystal in place, and it had 200 meters of water resistance, and they're doing the same thing now. Um, and this system actually helped with helium overpressure during dives, so you don't need a helium escape valve. Okay. It's, you know, it's it's a different take on the dive watch, which I think is cool. Um, and the interesting thing is the reissue, they kind of stayed true to that look, right? So um, they use Hazelite crystal, just like the Speedmaster, and it actually comes with Scotch Guard to help with scratches. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got to say, you know, lots, lots of these neo-vintage watches that people released, you know, they... they, they Nicks out the Hesselite, but Certina kept it real. They put the Hesselite in there. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing. I was going to bring that up if you haven't, which you have right now, but yeah, they went for the Hesselite, which is very interesting. Um, I dig it. I, I, it's got the it's got the dome. It's got the look. It, the crystal just looks right. I love that that second hand that's red. It's, it's gorgeous. I don't know. What do you think of the aesthetics? I really dig the aesthetic. It's very tool oriented, vintage tool oriented. Uh, and do, you, do you want to tell people what the price was? I believe it's what seven hundred thirty-five bucks. Seven hundred and thirty-five USD. Wow, that is crazy. That that is a great deal for a Swiss dive watch. That's like an original design. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean the original was few differences. Obviously, I mean the original was forty millimeters in diameter. This is about forty-three now. No big yeah, deal. Yeah, well sized up. Yeah, but it looks fairly thin, actually. I mean, yeah, yeah, I, I think so too. And and I like the font on the on the bezel. I I like it. I, I really gotta say I like it. Yeah, I'm, I'm I think this this was this was really quite a home run from Certina, and uh, good for them. I hope they keep this up. This would probably be our pick of the lot because I it's mean, affordable. You like, can probably afford it right now if you really yeah. <laughs> squeeze and save but yeah it's it's an amazing watch and you know i always encourage you know people that make watches for regular people that regular people can buy and actually enjoy and i think that's awesome yeah no i uh i can't uh disagree with you on that. i'm gonna link in the show notes to uh jason heaton's write-up on it because you know he's a professional diver and he he knows his dive watches inside out uh, from skin divers to rolexes and he lovingly reviews this piece, and I think he's right on point. So I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to that. Nice. All right, so I think that's really what we wanted to cover as far as our highlights from the show. Yeah, that's actually, I thought we had a, this would take a long time, but we are actually covered quite a bit in... Right schedule, yeah. Yeah, I'm quite proud nice. of that. Well, let's move on to closing notes, eh, Sench? Sounds good. All right, so I, the first thing I wanted to talk about, it's sort of watch-related, is... Um, the Golden Globe race um, and Outside Online actually had a reporter uh, cover this race um, for the 2018 edition. So what is the Golden Globe race? 
1968, they actually had a race around the world, which was uh, done by the Sunday Times in, in London. And it was going to be a circumnavigation, nonstop, solo yacht race uh, around the world, um, starting in London, going all the way south, south of Africa, going all the way east, and then coming back up the Atlantic on the other side of the world. Um, it was amazing. And it was, it was a legendary race. I mean, one person committed suicide, another person basically was about to win a, a French racer, and he just decided that he was just going to live his life in Tahiti and basically turn the boat around. <laughs> oh, wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, and went to Tahiti and just spent an extra year at sea. And the whole race took almost a year to do. Uh, wow. because you were on the boat nonstop for about a year alone. Yes. And uh, for the 2018 edition, they want to recreate the same condition. So all the boats had to be of the same design from 1968. Uh, none of the racers could use uh, GPS. They all, had to, they all had to use stars for navigation. Wow. And they couldn't even use uh, digital cameras this time around. They'd have to use film cameras like they had in 1968, and they would drop off the film uh, on waypoints for people to develop and sort of, uh, um, you know, disseminate what was going on in the boats. Um, so yeah, right now there's that they kicked off with 17 teams. I think two boats already uh, called it quits, but uh, it's an amazingly eclectic group of racers. You know, the racers from all over the world. There's an Indian racer. There's a there's a, a lady racer from Britain. Uh, there's it's really quite an eclectic group, and uh, it, it takes a really special uh, kind of person to do that to spend a year at sea without anybody without any technology and to pull that off yeah that is a that's actually a very monumental achievement for someone to accomplish that even in today's standard it's oh yeah and and speaking of the race and speaking of jason heaton from our last article uh jason heaton actually had a write-up on the first person who won this race uh, uh a gentleman named sir robin knox johnston and his Rolex Explorer, and basically, it's a, he had an interview with with uh, Sir Robin to discuss the race and also the watch that he wore the whole time. It's a great write-up. Uh, as always, Jason really goes into the history of, of the watch and the race, and it, it's it's an it's an awesome read. So uh, I, I'll put a link in the show notes there as well. But that's that's uh, it's it's a good time. Yeah, no, awesome. Um, my only question is, if you were to do this, what watch would you take with you? Oh man, so let's see here. So it would. Uh, hmm. I don't know. Like, I think I would take my my Seiko Turtle. You know, it's a dive watch. It's it's tough as nails. It's never let me down. And uh, on a boat for a year, yeah, I'd probably wear the Turtle. Yeah, for me, because it could handle it, I'll take the uh, the Fortis because it can do everything. Is the Fortis water resistant for two hundred meters or something like that? I believe it's two hundred meters. Really. Wow, for a space watch. Yeah, it's incredible. It's. I would never take my speed either. If, you know, watch or no, it has no water resistance. <laughs> if I were to drop this Fortis in in the hull of the boat, it'll probably punch a hole, and I will be done for. Yeah, it's it's you know it's a twenty pound weight that you're carrying around, so you know it, it better be tough. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I guess the next thing we want to talk about is The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight, yes. It's been 10 years. Can you believe that? That is unbelievable. I actually remember when I watched this movie in theaters uh, in 2008, I guess, and how blown away I was and how amazing a movie it was. Yeah, it was. it's brilliant. I mean, just think back 10 years ago. YouTube was a few years old. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I, and I remember the promos that were played endlessly on YouTube. Do you remember the, the teaser trailers and all that stuff? Oh, like yeah, that? the teaser trailers was phenomenal. And you got to hear oh. the Joker's laugh. Yeah, it, I mean, I've, I've rarely been that excited to watch a movie, and uh, it, it lived up to the hype. Rarely do movies live up to the hype, but it was it was awesome. Yeah. And oh. uh, basically there's been a bunch of write-ups on The Dark Knight Turning 10, what a big deal it is. Uh, but Polygon had uh, this write-up which basically said we'll never see a movie like The Dark Knight again. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a really good write-up on what made it special and um, you know how Christopher Nolan was able to take all these risks and sort of do his own thing. When, you know, today, if you're going to make any movie, let alone a, a superhero movie, you know, it's being done by committee by a bunch of, you know, hack producers in L.A. 
uh, versus uh, you know this movie, which is almost you know a high class masterpiece for a superhero film. Which really, if you ask me, no other superhero film got close to the impact that The Dark Knight had. So yeah, from an impact point of view, I agree. I mean, hands down, The Dark Knight is is one of those movies that they will always talk about. Um, always talk about. It. I mean, and the fact that it didn't win an Oscar upset people. You know. Yeah, that was incredible. Incredible. So, I mean, between me personally, and I know we always go back and forth on this, I actually prefer The Dark Knight Rises, um, only because... must be out of your mind. <laughs> only because Bane had the chance to take down Batman, okay? That. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's, it's, it's a different take, but I, you know, that duality between, you know, uh, the Joker and Batman, I, I don't... I don't think that kind of duel between two people has been that captured so well yeah. on screen. I, I I loved it. Oh no, I agreed. I mean, that was if I had to really had to pick nitpick about the Dark Knight is how on earth this is my engineering and logical brain kicking into gear. How on earth was the Joker able to accumulate that much gunpowder and dynamite <laughs> in a short time span? That that's where you have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> how is he able to rig a hospital in less than 24 hours he's the joker man he put he put a bomb in a fat guy come on he can do anything <laughs> yeah. uh, but the way it was carried out I mean no it's been a while like since I mean which superhero movie came like that so dark you know so gritty uh, since the dark knight even Batman Begins didn't have that much of, uh, of like a grit to it relative to the I, Dark Knight. I love Batman Begins. I think I think that was probably my second favorite superhero film after the Dark Knight. To be honest, I, I love both those films, and I think you know everyone since the Dark Knight has been saying, "Let's do a darker version of X," right? And like, yeah. But like you know, the Dark Knight did something, did it uniquely, whereas you could kind of see that, oh, it's Aquaman, but a dark version of Aquaman. Like, yeah. it just seems like, you know, everyone's just trying to copy Nolan, where, you know, nothing beats the original. Yeah, my only, if I had to nitpick again on The Dark Knight, I'm sorry, I'm just taking this film downhill, but no, I I do love this film a lot, is yeah. the, so they changed the martial arts that um, they had to do for for The Dark Knight. They changed it to something different from what it was from Batman Begins, and I thought it was a bit more regular punch punch, uh, not nothing trained by the League of Shadows style, you know. I see. When he yeah, when, when sure. he yeah, I'm gonna rewatch that and I'll tell you. Yeah, when he crashes into the you know the when he's in Hong Kong to go get Lao, and yeah, yeah, he 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 beat, he takes down all the bad guys, um, but he just literally just punching. I mean, nothing fancy. There's not enough finesse for you, huh? There's not enough Jason Bourne style <laughs> hand-to-hand combat. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, that's The Dark Knight. Um, great movie. Please. Ten years. Ten years. Can't believe it. It's still fresh today. Unbelievable. And and I think our last note is to sort of be a, a, a look back on someone else who was impactful the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, Sergio Marchioni, um, who unfortunately and recently passed away on July 25th of this year. He was the chairman and CEO of the FCA, Fiat Chrysler Automobiles. Um, he had complications from a shoulder injury, which um, which really the, the board or many people didn't know, but he was actually quite sick for a while, for a year or so. Um, I guess he kept it private. Um, had to do surgery, complications arose, and he just uh, passed away. Uh, Which is terrible. I mean, he was a giant in the field. He was a giant. He literally made FCA that it is today. I mean, you have to understand, FCA came from bankruptcy from 09. Um, here comes Sergio Marchioni, uh, he, who hated wearing suits, so he was a black sweater, wearing jazz loving chain smoking uh also watch loving um guy uh, really yeah you know anything about his watches or not i do not but if maybe I, if i do find something i'll add it to the notes sweet yeah yeah let's follow up on that um but he literally saved fca made it what he is today i mean he had the 
the the business acumen to basically um, do what is necessary, even if it means um, going thinking out of the box and you know going against the norms. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you look at his product portfolio, he basically banked on the fact that um, sedans and small cars are not profitable. So let's just gut them. I mean, me personally, I mean, oh man, that's like the worst idea. We're heavily dependent on uh, trucks and SUVs, which is now like a growing and continuously growing thing. But well, Jeep is the biggest division of Chrysler right now, right? Jeep is basically the most profitable division of Chrysler. Jeep and Ram. Um, he literally made them. He spun off the Ram from Dodge to its independent to an independent brand, and it was successful. And Jeep, he really saw the value in the brand. I didn't know that. I didn't know Ram was independent. So, like, Ram, in the sense, as a brand, it's independent. I mean, it's not... You know how we used to call it the Dodge Ram? Yeah, yeah. Now it's just called Ram. I did not know that. Okay. Um, so, he unlocked the value of the brand. Yeah. Very successful. And Jeep, I mean, back then, when Jeep in the early mid-2000s, it, I mean, half their product... Three quarters of their garbage... I mean, three quarters of their product was garbage. Now it's... Yeah. Super profitable, and now the next step is taking it international. Yeah, yeah. Pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure he's going to be missed. Oh, he's definitely missed. I mean, his his impact on FCA, whether yeah. it's well, too people liked him, right? Yeah, and he was just different. Um, he was a, he he spoke his mind. I mean, so yeah. The one cool thing with this, he was a star from, like, say, an alumni point of view because he went, got his MBA from the University of Windsor, which is where ah, I did my undergrad. the esteemed University of Windsor. Well. They've created many an automotive legends. Including me. I know. I know. <laughs> but, yes. Um, don't get me wrong. University of Windsor for engineering is a good school. Um, it's gotten me this far, and I have no regrets over it, so... Uh, but, you know, every university has their superstars, and he was our superstar. That's awesome. So. That's awesome. Well, rest in peace, Sergio. He did, he did a good man's work. Good day's yep. work. So, that concludes our episode. Um, actually, I thought we actually had, this was going to be an hour long, and it's approaching there, but we got quite a lot done within yeah, the hour. absolutely. Thanks for joining us again. Yeah, thank you very much. And stay tuned for the next episode, which hopefully won't be revealed in three months time um (laughs) but who knows time and things has separated us from this podcast so that's gonna change right sanch yes yes it's gotta change but you know a lot of things have changed for the better right absolutely well thanks thanks again for joining us all right thank you thank you for joining us on this episode of the land jam podcast be sure to follow us on soundcloud like and share this episode if you enjoyed it and follow us on twitter at the land jam pod